Wiggum. Wiggum to Fox on Wednesday podcast. Yes. The classic cast is, 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 is Tim Stafford, Tim Mike. Tim Stafford, Daddy Mike. And? The classic cast. Susie P. Lynn. Susie P. Lynn is with us today. Now, and, you, yep. 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 Do you know that her name does her middle name is not P? Oh, don't no. ruin it. <laughs> okay. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, it is absolutely P for perfect. Absolutely. Now t- now let's see. Seth, yeah. I, I almost called you Tim. Seth, <laughs> you've been on fall break this week. What's been going on? It's fall break. It's Nate Erie on the house. Nate Erie in the house. Oh man, we just had Nate Erie. And I want to thank the one person that emailed in and said hi to Nate. <laughs> because Nate was complaining, Susie, that he doesn't get any right. emails and that Great. Seth gets all the emails. And so Nate went on a little bit of a rant uh, out of just jealousy. Uh, and, and there was one person nice enough who wrote in and asked about your college experience right. and how it's going. That's right. Uh, first of all, whoever that was, I love you with my entire heart. And you will be cherished forever. Nice. I'm going to get a plaque with a screenshot of your email. I'm going to put it on my wall. It's going to be my motivation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yep. Yeah. Anyway, uh, to, to address the email, um, <laughs> I forget what, what, what it is. Oh, it was about college pranks. Yeah. Um, me and my roommates last year in the dorms had a prank war. Prank war. It resulted in my desk being moved to the bathroom, um, came back, and my mattress was gone. Um, just lots of, lots of interesting things. That that happened to uh, those are the ones that do not involve nudity. Yeah, by the way. So just to so, those are the ones that are safe to talk about on air. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. So well done, Nate. Great. All right, Seth. Yeah. What what should the people hear right about now? Yes. What should they hear? What should what should be on right now? What should Tim put on right now? Seth. After, on Seth. Yeah, yes. but whose theme song? Nate. All right, all right. Seth. All right, yeah. Yes, yeah, right. Wait, 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 one second, one second, one second. Y'all better send some more emails, man. I'm tired of this. I'm tired <laughs> of just only, only being happy with one. I need more, more, and then if you think I'm done, I need more. What? Okay. <laughs> emails, 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 texts, calls. Wow. Send them to me. All okay. Right? Wow. I okay. am the next one up. Yes. One day, yeah. Big Mike isn't going to be around. Boxology <laughs> needs an heir. <laughs> Who is it going to be? It's going to be Seth. The answer is Hannah. Yeah. yeah the well, <laughs> oh, yes, that too. The realistic answer is definitely Seth. But anyway, I appreciate you guys. And Seth, which theme song you want to do? You want to do mine or yours? I'm going to do Seth and Nate. You want to do us? Yes. Okay. Which one? You said both. Seth, drum roll, please. Okay, you want to do Seth? Yep. Yeah. Do it. Drum roll, please. All right, seven, 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 seven. And then two. <laughs> Hit Seth's theme song. Seven, please. It's Seth. It's Seth. Hey, everybody. It's Welcome to the Voxology Podcast. Man, do we have some home cooking for you today. Home cooking. Ladies and gentlemen, we are on fall break here in the South. The reason we're in fall break is because we start school horribly, horribly early in August. August is, as I've said before, and Jesus agrees, is a summer month, not a school month. But not here, not in Tennessee, but one of the recompenses that we get. Whoa. Yep. For for starting early, I know. 
is that we get fall break. And ladies and gentlemen, you've heard her gentle laughter. Susie Lind is joining us live from Florida. Oh. While she is on her fall break, spring break. Fall break from Florida, 38 to be exact. Yes. It's glorious. It is a glorious down there. Mm -hmm. Tell us, just tell us. You know, it's just like a mild high 70s degrees, a gentle breeze, white sands. Oh, wow. And I think this is the year that I have, um, I've crossed over, crossed over to being a uh, Pacific Ocean swimmer to a Gulf of Florida swimmer. Oh, wow. Because the water temperature is that. The water uh, temperature, it's clear. The waves are just enough for me to enjoy, you know? Yeah. 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 Good. Wow. I mean, that's, I mean, Tim, how do you feel about that? I mean, you guys all made choices. You all moved. What yeah. can I say? What can I do? <laughs> but well, I do the... still prefer the Pacific Ocean, like as far as being at it, looking at it, walking along it. Yeah. Let's be clear. See, I was Just... in, when I was in Southern California, I didn't like going to the beach. Really? It's crowded. That's, yeah. There's sunny. sand everywhere. It's sunny. Whatever, Anakin. <laughs> yeah. And it's sunny, which is not your vibe. No, I love the, but I love Northern California coast line. Like hiking yeah. along Big Sur area and that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If Big yeah. Sur had a face, Tim, it would be your face. Yeah. Absolutely. Goonies. Kind of rugged, you know, lots of forests. Green. Yeah. White sand. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Susie, have you done anything fun with your family since you've been there? You're with a couple other families, correct? With other families. And, I mean, it's just fun going to the beach games last night nice you sound you you oh. faded out there like crazy oh sorry you went underwater yeah well yeah. i didn't go underwater in the ocean but i did frolic in the ocean it was lovely that was fun <laughs> wow yeah. i i i don't know that i frolicked in a very long time let's just <laughs> let's put it that way i don't even really know what that means but it yeah. sounds fun yeah well listen Susie p lind as Seth refers to her, her her middle name is not P at all, but somehow that's the moniker. It's one word uh, from Seth Erie, Susie P. Lynn. Um, so Susie, if you're new to the podcast, has joined us. She works uh, at the church that I work at. She's an elder, a teaching pastor. She's the, she's the director of staff, so she, technically she's my boss. Um, and, um, and so one of the reasons we have her on the podcast is just a curry favor, um, because we're, (laughs) we're asking for a raise later this year. But so Susie, we, one of the things we've been talking about, um, over the last couple of weeks are all the things that are happening in Iran. Did I say that correctly? You did. Nice. Okay. Cause Susie, (laughs) one of Susie's, one of Susie's pet peeves is the mispronunciation of Iran um for for her native country but we've been talking about it because you saw a family there right i mean i don't know that Mm -hmm. people would know this from just the sound of your voice or whatever but uh you were born in iran and you have really clear memories of some stuff Mm -hmm. that was going on i'd love you just for you to kind of fill us in with a bit of your backstory the origin story if you will of Susie peeland okay 
Yeah. So I was born there. Um, I was born in 1974, which was a really good time in Iran. Um, it was a time when people would go there to travel. It was, um, I mean, it was good for some people, let's say. So it was, mm. it was very Westernized. It's not, it wasn't what you see on the news today. Um, and then in 1979, I was four years old, and that's when the revolution started. Much like what you're seeing in the streets today, a lot of young people rising up against the current um, monarchy that was there at the time. And um, there was this uprising, and it started out very much like, like just riots. Like I often compare them to what we experienced in LA with the Rodney King riots. That's what it mm. seemed like at the time. Yeah. And we lived in Tehran, like right in the middle of where all of it was happening. So some of the memories that I have are of my dad, like running down the street with groceries in his hands because, and there was like stuff going on in the background. He was just trying to get home. Mm. Um, and so that kind of ensued for a while. And, uh, my grandparents, my mom's parents lived in London at the time because my grandfather was retired from working for the oil company. So if you just, I mean, this is not going to be a long history lesson, but like the whole thing that happened in 1953 with nationalized oil and all that stuff that affected my grandfather a lot. So mm -hmm. he ended up living in London with my grandmother. So my dad sent my mom and I to London to stay with them for two weeks because just to keep us safe and to get us out of there. We wow. were only supposed to be gone for two weeks and we never actually went back. Wow. My dad ended up leaving and coming to London and joining us there on the last flight before the Ayatollah came back and shut the whole country down. So we end up staying in London for two years. I go to school there. Um, I think it was kindergarten and first grade. And then I, we moved to California when I was six, because during that time in London is when my mom developed multiple sclerosis. Her mm. sister was living in California. The care for my mom was better there. So we ended up um, coming here. And it's, it's interesting to me, the timeline of it, because we were received as immigrants during the hostage crisis. Wow. So when you think about like all of that, it's, it's just interesting to me now. Yeah. Um, wow. So I've, I've lived here ever since, but my dad went back to Iran for the first time when I was in the eighth grade, he ended up staying for a whole year. And then after that, he came back and would go back and forth and he lives there now. So, and wow. then I have wow. tons of cousins that live there and, um, I have an uncle that's still living and a few aunts and, and then lots of distant relatives. So, yeah. Can you, can you just, uh, because, you know, we're, we're more worried about who the Kardashians are dating um, mm -hmm. than things that are happening in the world. Can you yeah. just refresh uh, us on what happened several weeks ago to spur all of sure. this protest on? Yeah. So it actually started earlier in the summer. The, um, there was a new, there was an election and um, there was, uh, you know, like in every country right now, there's the hardline conservative and the more progressive running. And the election was actually um, messed with and rigged. So <laughs> the Oof. the hardline conservative won and he is like the most hardline conservative that they've had in years. Mm. So in the last few years, like when I would look at pictures of my cousins, 
on social media out and about, they would be wearing their, their head coverings, which is part of the hijab, which is the whole outfit that covers yourself. And they would wear it loosely. Like I could see their hair and, and it wasn't, it wasn't super tight and, and strict. Well, this guy in July takes office and he starts really doubly enforcing the rules of the hijab. So early in September, um, there's a woman named Masa Amini who is from Kurdistan. She comes to Tehran to visit with her brother, I believe, and she gets arrested by the morality police. The morality police are plain closed, um, quote unquote, police that are they're not like police officers in uniform. They're plain closed people empowered by the government to enforce morality on the people. So they arrest her and for wearing improper hijab, for not having her hair covered well enough and not having and her jeans were too tight. And they take her to this place. I forget the name of it, but it's really well-known place in Tehran where they take people to quote unquote, re-educate them in the ways of the hijab. So she, she gets taken there and she's beaten and um, she ends up collapsing. By the time they take her to the hospital, she's in a coma um, and she ends up dying. So there's there's evidence from CT scans that she has multiple blows to the head and trauma and all that. But the government is insisting that she had a pre-existing condition, like a tumor or something from when she was a kid. And that's what she died from. And her parents are vehemently denying that and saying that she was in perfect health. So that's what they do. They they mm-hmm. I mean, several of these kids that have died in the last few weeks during these protests, they they've said have committed suicide you know, all these things. And they're, you know, it's being said that they're being forcing, they're forcing confessions from people and they're forcing different stories because they're starting to feel the pressure of shame because it's a shame-based culture, right? Mm -hmm. So, So so I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, no, go ahead. There's a lot. (laughs) But Well, no, no. I mean, the thing that was so remarkable was that the protest began with women. Yeah, so women basically you know, after she dies and, and what happens is there's a reporter that, that takes a photo of her in the coma, takes a photo of her dad and her grandmother embracing outside the hospital room as she's dying and it goes viral and everybody loses their minds and they, well, in a good way. And the women just are like, this has been 43 years of oppression. This is generational oppression and we're not going to take it anymore. And so this this movement just takes off with women leading the charge. They're dancing in the street. They're burning their hijabs like women used to burn their bras back in the day. And they're they're defiant and they're fighting. And, um, you know, they're being they're being there's attempts to suppress them by the IRGC and the police and the, the National Guard. But the more they suppress them, it seems the more angry people are getting and the more people are coming out in the streets. But. I mean, there are so many young people that are our kids' ages that yeah. that have been killed, and you know, it's 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 very sad. I mean, all my cousins, all just to make it personal a little bit, most of my cousins are parents of girls, the ones that are my age, mm. and you know, I've been able to check in with them a little bit, and you know, I don't have deep relationship with them because I'm actually the oldest one and one of the oldest and they were all born after I left. But 
you know, I've been able to check in with them and the things that they're saying are like, I'm tired, I'm sad, I'm, I cry every day, I, it feels hopeless. I mean, this is, yeah. this is the, what's, you know. Yeah. It's hard. Oh, because you look, imagine. I mean, I can't help but to look at the faces of those kids and see my own kids in there, you know? Totally. Yep. I, I, yeah. And is there any indication that this is a, a different movement from the movements, from previous movements that have washed over yeah. Iran? Yeah. I mean, so I just want to also kind of give the caveat that there's a lot that I don't understand. And because, you know, I've lived here since I was six. And so mm -hmm. I'm learning a lot as I, as this is like really, um, with how it's affecting me personally, yeah. I'm yeah. really learning a lot. And I've learned a lot in the last year about our traumas that we experience when we're little and how our bodies remember things. And yeah. so I'm so much more, this happens every few years to answer your question, Mike, there's been an uprising of some sort and I've always felt it deeply, but not understood why. And now I understand why, because of the own, my own work that I've done. And it's almost making me even more angry. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's different in the sense that it's persisted. Um, there are, you know, there are some that would say like that reporter that, that the story went viral about Massa Omni. She's been, a, she was arrested two days later. She's in jail yeah. right now. So, you know, You'll hear some people say it probably won't change anything because it's a leaderless revolution. Mm -hmm. But what's actually what seems to be showing up is that that's benefiting. Um, it's not just one leader that's going to bring about change because before when they would have like um, protests because of bad elections and things like that, there was always an opposition ruler and they would they would put that right. opposition ruler on house arrest or they would arrest him and he would be in prison or, or killed. There's nobody there's nobody to pinpoint. The more people they kill, the more people come out. Wow. Yeah. So it's like, you know, there. There is some hope there, but I, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to go. I just find myself really in a place of lament and and praying yeah. for God to intervene because he can and he has in the past and um you know these you know I look at our our kids and their friends and I love them and bless them and I think about the challenges that they face on a daily level here and then I look at them and I think they're going out in the street and they don't know if they're going to go home that night. There's a good chance they're not going to go home that night. And and this has been, you know, I mean, I've, I've heard stories for years about my cousins being out and, you know, being caught at parties and, and being yeah. beaten up. And, um, hmm. it, you know, none of this is new. It's It's yeah. been happening for 43 years and there's a whole generation of of kids who are like we're not you know and to quote the song we're not going to take it <laughs> yes <laughs> well and that was an interesting thing too i was just reading before we jumped on that there was a kid like a 20 something year old musical musician that mm -hmm. was taking all the different things that he saw the young women saying in protest and, and made a song out of it he's been arrested 
but the he song... was arrested and he was released and then he put on his instagram his instagram was taken down everything was taken down and then it came back up with him posting a story in his car with some guy behind him that nobody knows who it is and he's like you know there's the word is that he's been forced to kind of make these statements that are backing like recanting off. it yeah yeah but his song is nominated for a grammy now yeah, so, and it's interesting to watch. Well, like I was watching school, a, a bunch of young school, like I don't know, elementary or junior high age girls, young girls. They had their backs turned to the camera, their hair down, singing the song, and yeah. then people driving by the lines of people outside playing the song. And so the it's just this is always such a weird tension between when uprisings like this happen that are largely peaceful on, or not, or, or they're largely, it's just such an imbalance between the two sides mm. and you never know how it's going to end because yeah. at the end of the day, it's like, these are the, the people on one side are armed and like just the words morality police, first of all, mm-hmm. is insane. Um, you know, they took her in for a re-education re-education mm-hmm. center well it's, now what's it what what's being said now the last couple of days through so it's really hard to um you have to be real real careful with news that you get from there because a lot of the people who have been arrested are journalists mm-hmm. and they don't let other journalists into the country so it, it's a lot of work to confirm the news stories that are coming from there but what seems to be confirming the last couple of days is they're actually going into those junior high schools and high schools and they're asking for those girls and they're taking them and putting them into mental asylums and trying to reprogram them or i mean it's 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 really ugly it's really ugly good lord Susie. um i mean first of all thank you for sharing a bit of that i mean I, i think that the thing that I, I've been so struck by from a from a very far distant perspective is has been the power of women uniting um, and how I don't know if that's happened before, but um, the 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 symbolic power of women leading this and men sort of supporting them honking horns you know as the women are sort of dancing without their head coverings and those sorts of things um i don't know much more you know about it than than that except to say um you you sent us an article this morning that was just about how you know morality police sounds so extreme but there are increasing numbers of people in our culture who would advocate for something very similar uh, maybe not around head coverings, but certainly around certain opinions. Well, sure. I mean, the, when when Texas was, you know, working out their abortion laws earlier this year, there was, I don't know if it passed, but there was talk about a bounty law that like, yeah. you know, if, yeah. if, if I found out that you were participating in an abortion, whether you took your daughter or your wife or you were having an, a, a woman was having an abortion, I could... As a citizen, I could turn you in and get a reward for turning you in. Like, that's what that is. That's what the morality police is. And they, you know, between they have the besiege, they have the morality police, they have the regular police, they have the the guards. I mean, it's 
there's all kinds of levels there that but but yeah i mean plain closed citizens empowered by the government to enforce their religious morality right right and this is where that leads you know susie that's super powerful when we talk about the abortion laws in texas and kind of some of the same dynamics that are at work because i mean most of us would never think our country would be capable of the morality police as it's sort of you know spoken about and practiced uh, over there and yet there is this this really scary impulse that we're beginning to see fleshed out of you know whether it's extreme versions of canceling or whether it's extreme versions of telling on others there's just a it seems like an increasing willingness to not live with tension or disagreement but we just have to obliterate the other um, yeah. so that we're the last one standing and man that is that is a scary thing and that's why what's what's happening in um iran uh, iran matters if i pronounce it right uh because i'm now conscious of it normally i would just say iran bomb no. bomb 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 not bomb, anymore iran. wasn't that john mccain who said that awful thing anyway uh all that is to say um the 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 fact that we're seeing this and think it's only happening somewhere else is scary to me when yeah when... because the things that they're the things that the women are are fighting for there are it's it's different but it's the same it's it's autonomy it's freedom of expression it's you know and and this is you know i always want to be clear whenever this subject comes up i'm not saying that you know whatever your views are on abortion or whatever but yeah. it's 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 those fundamental human rights. I mean, there are things that are not legal for women to do in Iran, like singing in public and um, expressing themselves artistically in public. They're not allowed to speak in public in some in some circles, you know, like these are just fundamental human rights when they uh, if they choose to leave a marriage, they they lose custody of their children you know, oh, oftentimes. Mm. And it's, it's all, there's so much there. Like it's all based on your social status. If you have more money, you are more likely to have some freedoms in those areas. If you don't, then you, you don't. And so there's, there's a lot of layers to it, mm -hmm. a lot of layers to it, but yeah, you know, what they're, what they are, the baseline of what they're fighting for is, you know, it's a lot of the same conversations that we have about, women in the church and mm. patriarchy and like there's you can see the threads mm -hmm. everywhere and i'm not i'm not saying oh we're destined to become like that as a country in america here but but we are talking about a theocracy and and iran is a theocracy the the um uh head of that country right. the person who has the final say is the religious supreme leader yeah and so when we have people here talking about how you know our laws should be informed by the bible and and you know that it's the seven mountain mandate folks you know mm -hmm. like it's when we have all that stuff moving us towards a theocracy that's really what that is and i don't I don't see in the New Testament, I don't see that as the way of Jesus. Right. No, not even remotely. It's interesting. There was a guy who came out and was like, 
Well, of course you want a Christian nation, right? That's what it means to make disciples of all nations. That, of course, we would want our nation to be Christian. What is wrong with that? <laughs> and I can hear that voice kind of in this, in this conversation. So how would we, so how would we respond? What, what do we think is wrong? I mean, because we'd all agree, right? Fewer abortions, the better. We'd all agree Absolutely. with that. I'm assuming, yeah, correct? For sure. For right? sure. Um, abortion is not a social good. Um, and except in very few cases, it might be, but, but we would also resist the impulse to have informers around women or doctors who are receiving or performing abortions. Correct. Yeah. So how, so how would we respond to somebody saying, well, yeah, that's just a, a Christian nation. That's shouldn't, that is the biblical goal, right? What would we say? I don't well, know. That's I mean, the I, thing, right? I mean, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead, Tim. I don't know the answer <laughs> to the question. And that's why I keep posing it week after week in different ways because I, it's so hard because you look at what's happening over there and, and you want to, I want to, I want to know how I can honor that well. And it seems like a lot of the people are advocating for awareness, like just keep talking about it, keep making people aware of it. Um, you know, so I see that and I, and then, and then I don't want to look at the situation over there and try to adapt it too much over here because there are unique elements to it that I want to respect. Right. right? Like, right. And, and, but then there are, there are signs that say, Hey, if you ignore this, this is what happens. And I don't want to be hyperbolic or dramatic. And I think that we get labeled with that kind of stuff, or I do at least like, you're just like, good Lord, the sky is not falling. Like settle down. America is not turning into a Christian theocracy nation, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I think you can see elements of this that do like go in that direction. If we just placate mm -hmm. it and just be like, whatever, there right. are dangerous elements that pop up. So like the, the bounty thing, you know, the obvious example that was used right away was a girl is abused and raped by her father or someone close to her. And then she seeks out an abortion because she's 15 and she's been in an abusive relationship. And then the father can turn her in and he gets $10,000 for being the one that did the honorable thing of stopping an abortion. And it's like, what a ludicrous scenario, mm -hmm. but it's mm -hmm. actually a real scenario. And it's mm -hmm. like, this is just bananas. But we're well, watching it, right? What we talked about last week, how many people are coming out now and just being like, yes, I am actually running on a Christian nationalist platform. No one's right. trying to redress it. They're just saying it straight up now. Right. Yeah. And that's terrifying. Well, the interesting thing about Iran, too, is that prior to 1979, with when the Shah was in power, um, he actually made it illegal to wear a hijab out in public. So he did the opposite thing. He oh, well. didn't want he didn't want people to be wear, wearing their heads covered because he wanted the country to become more westernized. Mm -hmm. So when they when they rose up in 1979 and ousted him and and started that revolution, it was also for religious freedom. Mm -hmm. Wow. So it's like it's two sides of the same coin is what yeah. I'm trying to say is yeah. that you know, a lot of the women who are reporting from Iran, they'll come out and say, I wear hijab because it's my choice and I want it to be a choice that's offered to all women. If they yeah. don't want to wear it, then they don't have to. Yeah. Yep. And that and that 
that is the answer to our question, right? That anything that smacks of control and power or coercion or manipulation or threats is not kingdom, not yeah. even remotely. And so you cannot have a Christian nation because a nation relies on the threat of violence for its sovereignty. Yeah. Um, and um, a Christian does not. End of story. I mean, yeah. literally, Jesus says, if, if my followers were of this world, they'd be fighting, right? Yep. That's the distinct, <laughs> distinguishing factor. Mm -hmm. So um, I think and this is so are. interesting. Right, right. This is so interesting. And, and Tim, I'm glad you keep asking the question. And Susie, thank you. Yeah. For, for sharing a bit of that. Can I just say one more thing, though, uh, just in response to what Tim said? Just yes. The whole, what you said, Tim, about like the thing is to be, to um, increase awareness about it, right? That this is a different situation than, you know, what we've talked about with other things, other justice issues that have come up in the last couple of years, as far as like, um, uh, virtue signaling, right? Yeah. When you yeah. post, do you just sit there and post stuff online? This is a different situation because um, what people in Iran are asking for is for their voices to be heard, to, for, for other people to be their voices, because their voices are literally getting oppressed and, and repressed and, and taken out. I mean, arrested, put in jail, killed, all those things. They don't have freedom of speech there. They, I mean, there's yeah. people walking in the streets, shooting at people in the streets and shooting into people's homes because just because of what they're saying, they yeah. don't have that freedom. And so they're asking for people in the, in the, um, in the, in the other parts of the world to, to, to talk for them and to, and to spread their stories and to speak about it and to, because, you know, one person said, you can literally shame this regime out of power. Hmm. And wow. it's a it's a totally different tactic because yeah. yep. it's a it's a different type of a culture war. It's a different type of a war. It's a different type of a fight for freedom. And so when you are sharing stories and you are making people aware of what's happening, it's because there's so little that's able to actually come out of there that, totally. that you're not virtue signaling, signaling, you're actually being the voice of the voiceless. Yeah, that's no, that's that's such, such a, a great good, distinction. And that's what I meant by awareness, but often I think because of how you just said that, um, we, we are coming out of a time period where we have felt that, like, you know, you're, 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 you're trying to really like give to just amplify voices and um but you feel like you're not doing much in that because you're just like i i don't you know i i'm not i'm not in in the in the what's the word like i'm not on the ground i'm not doing something you know, these people are putting their these kids are putting their lives on the line for just a basic freedom and i respect the hell out of that so much but i and i just like so the mm -hmm. awareness thing, it's, it's, a, I think it's a great, I think what you just said is perfect. I don't know why I'm talking about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then the other thing you can do, the other thing that people can do is learn history. They can learn yeah. the history of the Iranian revolution in 1979. They can learn about the history of the Iran Contra affair and the war between Iran and Iraq. And they can learn about the, you know, all the details of the nuclear deal that, mm -hmm. that president Obama made, that president Trump pulled out of that president Biden is trying to, <laughs> to 
to renegotiate. And, and I don't understand, I'm not here as an expert on any of that, but by making yourself aware of that kind of stuff, you can, that's something you can do because you do actually have a vote and you do actually have the ability to put people in office that, you know, are considerate of human rights. Well, you know what, right before we got on, I read a couple articles on that and I read the whole history so I could understand the back and forth. So maybe, well, maybe I'll send you those articles and you, and you see if they seem reputable and then I'll put them in the show notes. Yeah. I mean, I'm honestly learning about it too. I mean, Sharon say so she, she's on Instagram and she, she gave a nice little lesson on it. I mean, I I'm learning about it too. And the interesting thing is I have two sides of my family that see it very differently. Mm. Oh, wow. So just like in every American family, you have an interesting conversation at the dinner table at Thanksgiving. It's the same thing. You know, I have very, um, I have, you know, in my family, for example, my American, my Iranian American family, I have people who are very pro Republican and everybody in that party. And I have people who are very pro Democrat and everyone in that party. And, and both of them are coming from their perspective of how those two parties relate to Iran. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, that's good. And, and navigating that difference. I mean, that's what this conversation we've been having about, uh, ideologies has been about right it's mm-hmm. not settling for just the boxes um and so this ties in to so beautifully with the conversation we want to have with uh, tim gombas today um we're gonna manifest him out of thin air it's gonna be glorious but um the 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 as we look at what's happening there and begin to see some of the social dynamics happening here how do we navigate a dinner table conversation mm-hmm. um, is kind of where we've been spending some time. So we're going to invite uh, Tim Gombas on and have this conversation. We hope you enjoy it. Well, listen, we are so excited to be joined by our dear friend, Dr. Timothy Gombas, or as we all call him, Gombas. Uh, Gombas is a noun. Gombus is a verb in that you've been gombused, and gombus is also an adjective. Um, freaking gombus awesome is sometimes how that goes. And Timothy, how are you? Welcome back. What's happening? Thanks, man. I'm awesome. Things are great. New school year has begun. Yeah. And you're teaching at a new school. Teaching at Calvin Seminary, um, teaching New Testament narratives. Ooh. So narrative criticism and all that kind of stuff. And we were just uh, digging into some text this morning, which was tons of fun. And then um, moving into a part of the semester where we're going to be handling texts and not talking about method anymore, which bores me to death. So it's just going to be a blast. It'll be a lot of fun. I love that. Yeah, things are good, man. And the and the podcast is is up and running. You're doing uh, Bible stuff on Faith Improvised. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I... um, talking to you right now this is the best all week my voice has sounded i woke up monday morning and my voice was gone so i didn't drop an episode this week but it's just the weirdest thing i don't know if you're getting this uh i don't know where you guys are Susie and mike but like i heard like a big stretch of the midwest is all dealing with like a certain kind of a cold where like this is this is kind of how it's going Mm. steve was just up here and he said in kentucky it's like it's a mess but 
anyway, it hit me. I couldn't talk earlier this week, and there weren't too many people complaining. But. It hit me on Monday, too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no! Yeah, I mean, I think I just have, like, had an uh, uh, enormous amount of fluid in my face. That's the thing. <laughs> for, me, for me, it's all in my chest, and it's, you know, we don't have to have all the details, but it's like, it's, uh, there's, one of, there's one a lot of. in there. Yep. <laughs> if you had to describe the color, what word would you use? I'm a phlegm factory. Yeah. From an off way. Oh. Oh, nice. Nice. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Tim, one of the things we've been um, talking through the last couple of episodes, we've been talking about people, talking to people about the power of sort of these uh, ideologies that are floating around. Um, in culture, and so uh, we we're talking to some different authors, and and ideologies, of course, function as the shorthand, um, sort of all uh, all in one packaged sets of ideas. Where uh, one of the guys was saying, if you know, he can ask uh, somebody one question, and depending on how they answer the question, you can probably guess their answer on a whole other range of issues. And so we don't deal with nuanced thought anymore. We just deal with sort of slogans um, in the midst of a culture war. And I know we've talked a lot and you've done a lot of thinking about the whole culture war thing and how culture change works. Um, how, how do we escape the claim that, well, Christianity is just another ideology among many? And so here we have Christians trying to claim superiority of their ideas over the other ones but aren't they just guilty of the same sorts of things they're accusing other ideologies about does that make sense yeah i think um because <laughs> well, your face said i don't know what you're saying right now well i i have to say um on one hand like experientially i see that that's what it certainly looks like as i look out on our world it's like um the culture that I grew up in, you know, which is like white conservative evangelical culture, uh, has become has become just another sort of demographic group that is like oriented around power grabbing and um, has it's been kind of absorbed into the big system. So it's become just another ideology, it seems. So on on one hand, like observationally, that really looks like like it's the case. Yeah. Um, I, there's a, there's a sense in which like, um, there's something true about that too, like from the new Testament, like where it seems to me that churches, church communities in the new Testament should consider themselves like a gathering, a group that gathers in a town or in a city and they, the big, um, so they are sort of one subgroup of number among a number of other groups and is as people look at them, they're kind of making observation about there's this group and then there's the Christians, then there's that other group. Um, I think that what's different is that um, the, the vision of that in, um, in the New Testament is that the Christian group claims to be the, rep uh, the embodiment of, of the one true God on earth. And so that is a very kind of like exclusive claim but the way that that's manifest is by those kinds of communities, like being good neighbors. It's never like we have, we have the truth and everyone should buy into our deal. 
I think that's the mistaken move that a lot of Christian groups make today that like we're the ones that ought to be coming out on top. We're the ones that should be the drivers of culture. We should be in control of government and everything like that. So it's like we have the exclusive truth and we should be in the driver's seat of all the institutions and have all the power. Right. But it's like, you know, when Jesus, um, he claims to be the representative and the embodiment of the one true God and his earthly spokesperson. And the way that looks is getting up on a cross. So it's like, complete surrender of power and resistance to accumulating power and possessions, um, Hmm. money, status, honor, you know, cultural influence and all the rest. So um, that's, I don't, I don't want to use the word balance, but that's how that reality is held. Like the, the claim to be the representatives of the one true God and the embodiment on earth of the spirit of the one true God. But that looks like us being good neighbors that looks like us loving our enemies not not trying to dominate our enemies or that looks like forgiveness or advocacy for the vulnerable or solidarity with the weak and the vulnerable um yeah and so even, yeah well, we have no problem being good neighbors to people of other faiths or convictions or whatever yeah and and then of course i mean some would say being a good neighbor is telling people the truth about their condition that's what love you know turns out to be um where where, yeah. And we obviously would disagree with that like crazy. Where did, did the impulse come from? Either, Why would you say that? Why would you say that you disagree with that? That being a good being a good neighbor means you have to tell people the truth whether they want to hear it or not? Yeah. Why, how would you disagree with that? Because I do hear that a lot. I hear that a lot too. Yeah. I'm I saying, mean, how would you disagree? How would, oh, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm going to get ready. I'm, I'm ready to disagree now. Yeah. Uh, first of all, <laughs> I'm looking for uh, reasons. Well, I'm giving you reasons. Okay. Right now, reason number one, Doctor Gombas, um, uh, and I and I love something that Scott McKnight argues um, that that unless like covenant love, the kind of love that God extends us, is a love that is built on um, twoness and withness and fourness. So, so to have somebody experience that I am for them and I'm committed to them and I'm committed to be with them regardless of any, anything else. Um, and, and that unless people, people feel that as the primary sort of um, emotive thing they pick up from me, then he calls the fourth kind of part of covenant love toarding. Like we, God loves us toward maturity. The problem is we all we all want to toward each other first before we do the I'm committed to you and committed to be with you and committed to be for you. And unless you do that first, then any toarding you're going to do is going to feel like manipulation. It's not going to feel like love. That's the last thing it's going to feel like. Not only that, but um, I have a dear friend named Tim Gombas who has argued uh, quite, and, and now that I am in Greek class, I see it quite convincingly that this whole idea of speaking the truth in love that is used to justify that habit towards other people, that love means I have to speak the truth and speaking the truth means telling them they're a sinner. That is a gross distortion of the meaning of the text that rather what Paul is saying is that we're to be communities that love, that we are truthing. There's no speaking verb 
in that whole section, but we're truthing in love. And the truth in context manifests itself in communities of, of character that put on Christ and the reality of his self-sacrificial love. So there you Don't go. Learn. Those are two reasons. There, th- yes. <laughs> Where, no, where I just I hear that a lot, and so like I, there's been times where I've been like put back on my heels, like that sounds jacked up, but I don't know exactly how. It's yes. interesting because people use Jesus as the example of that, right? They use oh. him as the example of well, he, Jesus told the truth and love, but the kind of love that Jesus had for the people that he spoke the truth to was one that was willing to die so that they could be in the presence of God and be forgiven. I don't think most of the people who are speaking the truth in love in that way are willing to do that. That's the hard part. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, right? totally. Like, yeah. Along those lines, like at personal cost. like, so he's someone speaking truth to power, like the kind of people that can kill him. It's not just my neighbor that I'm just driving crazy or whatever. Right. Well, it's also yeah, rarely even- from the foundational point, actually in love, like, I would imagine most of those things are just out of pure judgment. Like I'm just mm. calling you out because you are different than what I think is correct on a rhetorical level. And so I'm going to say that, but it's out of love because it's my job as a sanctioned individual of the kingdom of Jesus to say, you're an idiot, knock it off. But I, I doubt that's hardly ever done in love first. That That's the totally. compost that that's coming out of. Well, I mean, even Paul in the way that he would, I mean, some would say that Paul spoke more harsh truth than Jesus did, but even he was willing to give up comfort and security and freedom in order to embody who Jesus was. Yeah. Yeah, and, And it's so contrary to Paul's rhetorical strategy of assuming the lowest social rung on the ladder in order to serve a community rather than setting himself over um, a bunch of people as, well, I have the truth and you need me. Um, he very he very much moved the opposite direction in I'm a bond servant, I'm a slave, I'm assuming the lowest social category. Um, and I'm and in in so far as to say, um, I won't even depend on you for physical needs. So there's no tarnishment of his motive. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you guys there. There's a deep sense. Uh, cause I read, there was a beautiful tweet that said being a good neighbor means you will upset your neighbors. Um, as yeah. you tell them the truth. That's so bananas, man. Yeah. I just don't understand. I, I, it's like, um, um, there's this, that posture or that sort of, um, standpoint seems like it is a way of making sure that you become a person that is disobedient to everything Jesus says, but you're using Jesus's words to endorse the disobedience in a sense. Like, it's no, what it is. it's like, it's like, look, dude, you are not loving your neighbor by driving them crazy. And it's like, no, no, this is how I love them. Right. It's just like that. I mean, learning a little bit more about, um, um, relationship dynamics and, um, just because of someone's situation, dynamics of abuse it's like that is precisely what abuse sounds like hmm. uh, in yeah. relationships and that, that that that's how abusers talk so it's like wow. people that sort of embody that are are and i want to give them credit like um unintentionally being drawn into like the logic of abuse like i know what's good for you 
and I'm going to, I'm going to make you angry. And that's what love looks like. Um, that's yeah, that's uh, relational abuse. And then also um, I'm always trying to think whenever I hear like a, a thought, I try to pull apart its grammar and try to follow it from like A to B to C and how are these connected? And that's that grammar never really appears on the pages of the new Testament. Like the new Testament works in different ways. It's like, this is what love looks like when there's somebody that doesn't have clothing and you at you at cost to yourself, you get them clothing. That's what love looks like. It's never this thing where like you're, you're denouncing or you're speaking boldly or something like that. It's just never, that's never how love looks in public. Um, so where does the impulse come for this sort of, and, 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 and on one sense, there's an individual mentality around evangelism, right? How are they going to hear unless someone tells them? Um, and we're to make disciples of the nations, right? So there's, in an individual sense, uh, there's an impulse that says, hey, guys, we, I mean, if you do have the, uh, the cure for cancer, would you tell cancer patients, right? And on a corporate level, there's this individual imp- or this corporate impulse down to culture war. Like we, we have to go to battle um, against other ideas and tribes, you know, for whatever the Christian way is. Where do you, where do you see, because I know you do a ton of reading, kind of the history of evangelicalism. Where do you see the origin of both of those impulses? On the individual side, the impulse to say, well, evangelism is the most important thing I can do, and it doesn't matter how I do it as long as I'm doing it. And on the corporate side of the kind of culture war motif of saying, hey, we're in a war with bad ideas and we have to win. Can you, can you trace, you know, have you seen anything as you trace that back where that sort of impulse begins or has it always been there? Well, I'm sure it goes back further than this, probably all the way to Constantine, but um, and Willie Jennings' book blew my mind, uh, The Christian Imagination, where he shows how it is that in the, the colonial, the era of colonization, where empires, you know, went to Asia, South America, Africa, and just plundered property and, and took stuff and brought it back to Europe to then make cheap products and sell them back to the people that they had already plundered. Um, that wrapped up with that larger project over hundreds of years was the project of evangelizing these people and turning them into Christians. Hmm. So it's, and so he talks about how I'll never forget the imagery, but Christian theology was done enveloped within um, the dynamic of power and plunder and uh, rapacious practice and devastation of natural environments. Um, So there's always been, Hmm. um, so with the founding of America, that's been the founding impulse of America. When, when white Christians, white Europeans came to this land, um, they used all the Christian rhetoric in the service and the justification of dominance. And so that in, in white Christian evangelical culture as what's found in the late 20th and early 21st centuries, those dynamics are still there. They're powerful. And now they're resurgent with like the resurgence of Christian nationalism. Um, I mean, there's just, there's just the felt sense that that's what we should be about. And while we're doing it, we should be loving. And that, that actually is what love looks like is to sort of see to it that 
institutions are Christian and this is our sort of our, our job or our duty. Mm-hmm. And it's been there a long time. Um, and it's never been, well, I was going to say it's never been rooted out in American Christianity, in white American Christianity. Uh, but I don't, I, I don't know that there's ever been the willingness to do the, the self-examination. But I think you're right that the, the commitment to cultural dominance comes first, and then we figure out how to use Jesus talk to sort of explain it. Or mm, to dress it up. Yeah. Make ourselves feel like we're, we're doing the right thing or whatever. Were the were the did Paul envision the New Testament churches um, affecting the culture around them? Um, I'm not I'm not so sure. I, I've I've tried to like if you if you go through all of the New Testament letter well, all, the, all of Paul's letters and you try to read them through that lens, like what effect does Paul imagine these communities are going to have on their surrounding cultures? I don't think you're going to find anything that mm. that's what's that is what is really shocking i mean we would have thought that paul has told everybody you know transform the culture around you um you should be having influence um all that kind of stuff but i mean i've tried to think through and there's just nothing it's like conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders <laughs> you know may, may your conversation always be seasoned with salt Mm-hmm. Um, so that you're, um, or like Romans 12, just don't retaliate, mm. pay your taxes and be a good neighbor and don't retaliate. The communities that he was founding were just these vulnerable, vulnerable communities. And if, if anything, I think he imagined, um, that these would be sort of outposts of, you know, kingdom life that were anywhere between 15 and 25 people that just served poor people. And so if there was an effect on the surrounding culture, it was feeding poor people, clothing poor people, um, that sort of thing. Yeah. But it's not, I mean, in, in American, in white American Christianity, it's like influence, effects, impact, you know, yes, we, yes. we want this stuff, Effectiveness. Want, you know, take the city, storm the gates of heaven or whatever. It's like, it's, <laughs> all the rhetoric is there. Absolutely, and you and you hear it. Uh, I was talking to um, a, a large gathering of younger folks who have all been told that their job is to do great things for God, right? In direct yeah. opposition to Paul's, like, "Hey, make it your ambition to live a quiet life and work with your hands." I mean, there's this pressure from the church that that even on an individual level, you've got to know what God's will for your life is, and you've got to make an impact and find meaning and purpose and significance. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, I had a, was supervising a research project where somebody was arguing that there's no language in Paul that represents that kind of impulse whatsoever. All of his sort of call language is very generalized. It's, it's just being called into the faith and that's it. Mm. Um, but he traces it back to, all that vocation language and call and, and uh, find your purpose and meaning and all that kind of thing um, as basically um, Christian hijacking of capitalist language for sort of finding your place within the capitalist structure. So that it's kind of, you know, forge your way and, and make, you know, find, you know, get your wealth or whatever. 
Um, I thought it was pretty compelling. That's, I think it's really interesting because you, you simply cannot find that kind of language in the New Testament. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. And, and instead, uh-huh. of, instead of liberation, that sort of language really turns out to suffocate and paralyze. Oh, it's so, it puts an intense obligation on each of us. I mean, especially like, um, I found this when I was teaching undergrads. I bet, Tim, this is your experience too. When I was teaching undergrads and teaching like general Bible classes, I would, I would always have the engineering students and nursing students and um, pre-med, they never had doubts about where they were going. It was like they had certainty. But students who like struggled in an environment where they heard that kind of talk, find God's will for your life, purpose, um, but the arts students, you know, it's like, how do you, I don't know what my calling is. I just want to create beautiful things or, you know, I, I don't know even what major to choose. And for so many college students who are 19, 20 years old, just so much anxiety yeah. about, about how, like, what, how do you even do this? You know, it's, it's really, it's really awful instead of hearing all that rhetoric you know do big things for god and all that kind of stuff oh by the way you i know you guys have seen it but um caitlin Beatty's book uh was it celebrities for jesus i think that's the title of like one of her first chapters is like big things for god yeah oh um it's like um most most of us all of us i know it's for me we're just gonna have average lives of just have playing a role in community and making a paycheck and it's like why can't that that's beautiful just contribute to a community and be significant and faithful over a long period of time that's 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 a compelling thing but unfortunately we have all this rhetoric of superstardom and we see all of our lives as kind of having to be that you know and i was thinking about this too with regard to ministry this is certainly tempting um i grew up in a culture where it's like paul was you know this kind of lone ranger type And not only was he a model for ministry, but he was like, every Christian was Paul, you know? And it's like, wait, wait, there's one guy that's Paul. And there's all these people in all these churches. Like, that's all of us. Like, we're not all Paul. Anyway. Yeah, that's so true, though. You see that, especially with the students, that I was reading an article about how much the hero's journey has been ingrained into just American culture so that we see it and want it for mm-hmm. our lives or, or not even see it and want it. We expect it subconsciously. And so everyone's mm-hmm. looking for that arc and it doesn't, you don't even have to be, you know, it can be that you're an athlete or it can be anything that offers you that, like, this is where the trials come in. This is how you overcome the trials. This is where the mentor comes in. This is how that works, mm-hmm. but it all leads to this heroic triumph and you just see it. Mm-hmm. And Christian kids really do. They cling to that like idea of um, being called and not, uh, yeah, it's hard. Yeah. It's a hard conversation to have on a daily basis of just kind of like not not just popping the balloon, but being like, well, you know, what do you think that looks like? What do you think that means? And how does that play out and blah, 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 blah. And when you want to just be like, who told you that? <laughs> Ask them why they said that. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's just what we say. Yeah. And that's we feel like we're being inspiring. I think the motivation is to give each person dignity and promise and hope and tell them that, you know, that we have all these great hopes for you and things are going to be so great. But I know for me, that was always crushing. It was, it was just like so much pressure. 
Mm. It's confusing too when you don't like, like you said with the art students. So that'd be more my experience is like, I don't know. And everyone's just like, well, I'm, I'm called to this and God is blah, blah, blah. I was like, what? I didn't get the yeah. email. Like, I know. How come out? Yeah. I didn't get the memo. What's the deal? <laughs> what did I do wrong? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do, do you sense, and, and this is a question for, for you and Susie, do you guys sense that this is all part of the same package? In other words, these aren't different symptoms uh, of different diseases, but but the 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 root is, you know, rotten, and so we see these impulses towards culture war, towards my you know my my preeminent concern with my significance and my blessing and my you know contribution to the world or whatever. Is there a sense that either one of you have that that's all part of the same thing? Yeah, I mean, it's funny listening to you talk, Tim. Like, I'm in the thick of church history right now for my class that I'm taking. And it's like, I like that question that you asked, Mike, about what was the impulse, because you see it all throughout church history, where there's this, you know, really good and well-intentioned movement towards Jesus, and then somehow it gets wrapped up in the political powers of the day, and it gets really messy. And in many cases, then eventually Christianity ceases to exist in that area or it dies, so, so to speak. And so it, it is interesting because as I'm reading all this history, I'm like, everyone should be reading history right now because this is exactly what's happening. You know, we're, we're tying our cultural beliefs and our, um, our faith and what we think that the Bible might be saying or not saying and and we're making a huge mess out of it. And I mean, I, I'm guilty of that myself. I mean, I think about all the things, all the decisions I've made based on um, a pressure to perform and a, a, a belief that I've had to, you know, do something great or be something great. I mean, I'm an Enneagram three, so we live for greatness, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's, it's all like, where does that come from? And I think for me, it wasn't until I started to understand what vocation, what Paul, what I think Paul means by vocation and how it's, you know, it can look like tent making, it can look like preaching, it can look like, you know, making dinner for someone, it can look like being a mom and so many different things, but we have these elevated, you know, positions of power in our culture that we've all kind of become obsessed with like that, that. I love that verse that you talked about when you were talking to those young people, Mike, about do your best to lead a quiet life and, and to be busy with your hands, with the work of your hands. It also says, and mind your own business, you know, it, because that's, that's the trap I think we often fall into is we're, whether we're an emperor in Rome trying to conquer more lands or we're a TikTok star in 2022, we're constantly looking to our left and our right and trying to keep up with what we think is the best way to be, whether it's for God or, or someone else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, I think that makes me think, Susie, of like this dynamic where like the Christian way, whenever it goes into a new place and ha it has to have local expression in that place, wherever that is, um, there's almost like this dynamic where it goes to this new place, it, 
has a local expression of what Jesus following looks like there. And then over time easily gets kind of captured by the local ideologies, whatever they are mm. oriented around like prestige seeking, power seeking, wealth accumulation, capitalism. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I was, was going to say, and the, and the current iteration of that is like, I think that for the dominant white visible Christianity in America, it, it is simply and only the creation of capitalism where it's like, I mean, you said it, Susie, it's like, Capitalism sets individuals against each other in competition for greater prestige and wealth accumulation and like conspicuous consumption and status um, symbols and accumulation of status symbols and elevation of status. And we're, we've all been set in competition with each other. And that's where that language comes from, Mike. Do something great. Like you be the best. You kind of, it's never like you link arms with, with those around you and see to it that you all thrive and flourish together. I mean, that's what kind of message would that be? You know, we, the way that we commies, all the thought forms that we have have been supplied to us by capitalism, which is individuals in competition. Mm. But the interesting thing is like the class I'm taking is a global Christianity class and the, the, the church, you know, the movement of God movement of Jesus is growing faster and more prolifically in parts of the world right now that are, are suffering, that are, that are, you know, they're underground. They're, they're not, they don't have that kind of setup in their society. So. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a natural embeddedment. I mean, that's the natural expression. So mm. yeah, that, that's why I want I keep trying to talk about um, white American Christianity. Like I'm talking about the thing I'm caught in, mm -hmm. but I think it's really important to specify that. No, I think that's so good. And it, and it seems to be unnecessarily threatening to some to hold out that sort of line of interrogation around the water I swim in. So, so, cause I can hear people reacting to some of our language, like, well, it's just cause you're woke and you've succumbed to woke ideology. Um, and so that's what the reason you're questioning the United States or capitalism or whatever. But you said something I thought was was super interesting. Uh, the idea that that we have a local expression and then the, the local expression can get co-opted by whatever local ideologies could be. And so we have examples of that in the scriptures, right? You have um, we're in the we're in the middle of a series of conversations in our church about revelation, mm. which isn't this forecasting of the future, but it's this this interrogation of the culture of these seven churches and the ideologies floating around there. Um, how, how is it, or what tools are there to, from which we can kind of stand and ask those questions? Because I think people would hear us talk and say, well, you've just succumbed to the, the woke ideology around you. So you're living the example that you yourselves are critiquing. And we would say, no, we're trying to actually be faithful to Jesus, and they would say that thing too. But is there a place from which we can interrogate the cultural understandings that we have that is sure-footed? Yeah, I, th I think so. Um, to my mind, it's like, uh, I, I've tried to keep a handle on a couple of different thoughts and, and focus on, because um, um, this was my question over the last six years, Mike, was with, like the whole 
coming a part of everything since 2015 and 16 in the election. Um, mm-hmm. That's not becoming a part of everything. It's a full flowering of several hundred years of history. But um, in trying to find a, what did you say, secure standing point to kind of find our sure footing? Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it because it's like, where do we start here? And that's, I was doing a lot of thinking and writing around that time. Um, just going back to the absolute bottom of like Christian identity, who am I and how do I behave? Mm. And um, I, I just came to the sort of the fundamental place of reckoning with the fact that I'm loved. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm set right with God that my, my status with God is not up for grabs. And there are, there's an available set of postures and practices that, um, that are there for me. Uh, one of them I know is not is, is like pointing the finger, like judging other people. Um, you know, judge not lest you be judged, but there's, there's one posture that's available among a number of other ones. And that is confession of sin. And so, um, like self-examination and confession of sin and lament. And so I, to me, it's like, I know that for a lot of white Christian people to hear talk about race or social status or whatever, immediately awakens guilt um, or just discomfort. And so I don't, I don't have any, um, I'm not trying to be woke or whatever. I am trying to be, I'm not, I'm not trying to capture like a cultural mood so much as I am trying to inhabit that, that, um, Mm -hmm. that footing of what does confession of sin look like for me? So like what, what cultural patterns have caught me? What, like what, what um, social dynamics have me in their grip? And so, I mean, Susie was using that really important pronoun and talking about a lot of these things. We, we, I, we. And so it's like, instead of talking about you're all like this, it's like, all right, what, what has us and what has me? Um, that's an available posture. And so um, one of the things I've discovered is that like, you know, as, as the, you know, the four of us might talk, it's like, we're going to do a lot of patting ourselves on the back. Um, but like, who are some writers and thinkers who are not going to pat me on the back, but are going to talk, tell the truth about who I am and where I'm at. And for one group of those is, um, black women writers and, and, um, um, intellectuals and scholars and sociologists. So it's like, I'm just reading, um, everything I can from someone who is a cultural other and who can who can look at me and my cultural embeddedness and 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 talk to me about that because I want to know, I want to scratch and claw towards liberation. Um, so I don't. I think that that is not a cultural fad. Um, what to my mind, what would be giving into some kind of like a, an ideology of the day would be to um, put all of this stuff, all all these kind of discussions in terms of like an identity as an American or to do so on liberal democratic terms so that um, I'm talking about rights or talking about, Mm -hmm. um, or talking about guilt and talking about denunciation because that um, that's sort of the, that's the cultural register that we can talk in. Like Mm -hmm. we're, we're bad. We're, we're the bad white people. And it's like, we, as somebody who's loved by God and justified and that my status for God is already set, I can't talk like that. It's like, no, I'm a, I'm a loved by God white man. That's also not a white man. 
you know, I, I am, I'm, I'm an in Christ person inhabiting new creation realities. Same time I'm in this world and this world has said about me that I'm narrated as a white male. Um, even though the way that God narrates me is, is as his child, his beloved son. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think there's, there's all these available frames in scripture That's good. that I think that we miss because instead of kind of soaking our minds and imaginations in them for generations of Christian discourse in America, we've just, we've, we've played the game of power with Jesus talk hmm. instead of playing the game of like, you know, the cross and the kingdom of God, you know, and, and maybe dialing back to Jesus talk and talking like normal people. Um, hmm. By which I mean, just operating out there in the world without wearing our, our identities on our sleeves and, and <laughs> kind of like, and just being good neighbors. Yeah. Do you think that that's really hard to do? Like when, when you're in a position of, of power or leadership or whatever, because people, people come, come to you with things, you know, whether they want to correct you or ask you about something and they, in their minds, they want to know where you are and what category to put you in, in those things so that they know how to relate to you and how they're going to receive from you or give to you or whatever. I mean, I think that's really hard. I mean, what you're saying is so good and so true. Like on a practical daily. I'd you draw that out a little bit, Susan. What do you mean like a position of power, like for who? Well, I mean, like, you know, like Mike, you got that email this week from someone and they just kind of neatly put you in a box mm-hmm. when they emailed you about their perspective. And I think it's just, it's hard to do that in, in like, in daily life because it requires us to slow down and have meaningful conversations that are two ways and don't come at with agenda you know they don't begin with agenda and it just seems like that's harder and harder for for people like i mean in church leadership in academic leadership probably you know and and even people who are holding political office that want to do the right thing, people um, in nonprofits and even even in relationships with corporations, I imagine, you know, but it's just hard because everyone wants to know the rules before they engage. Yeah, that's really interesting, man, Mike, I'm sorry, bro. Um, that that is there's a lot there. There's a world there. I think, see, that's a great question. Um, I don't know if it, I'm, I, I'm not sure what I'm saying. I'm just thinking it no, out loud. I think that's a big deal. Um, I think, well, I can tell you how I have decided to approach all that. Yes, absolutely. I No apology needed, Thomas. <laughs> what are you saying I'm sorry for? That's just a tough spot to be put in. Um, I think it's really, really hard. Get, I think it's almost impossible, or no, it's not impossible, for like white evangelical Christianity or what, just even white Christianity and its institutionalization in America, it is so hard to be Christian. I'll just say it that way. <laughs> if, if you are in, if you're in a place of... Um, and you don't mean that in a persecuted way. Oh, not at all. No, yeah. I think if you really, <laughs> just to clarify. If you really think, 
No, it's it's because we have all yeah the persecution complex is complete BS. I mean, we have all the power and all the money. That's just the bottom line. Our people, um, but it, it's just really hard to embody genuine, um, genuine humility and Christian virtue, and um, and to because all of that has to come from a place of of having given up everything already. Mm. Um, and if you if you are in a place. Like, I'll just say it. If you have a job where you get paid by Jesus Inc. Come on. You have a lot to protect. Yep. You have re- a retirement. You have, you know, kids and a house and a mortgage. And, all that. and it, the church has a building. And it's like you have all these values that are like, well, those are those are peripheral. No big deal. We can have all that and still do the Jesus thing. We could still be Christian. And it's like what what you don't realize is like, in the gospels jesus basically says you get all that stuff you can't do this kingdom of god business mm. it's gonna just be it's it's gonna be really hard mm. um like i think a lot of us i know for my social location i've been so challenged by this to identify myself with that rich young man that jesus talks to and he he gets the call to the kingdom and he's like i he goes away sad and jesus is heartbroken for him then he turns to the disciples and he says, do you see how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? And it's like, I just keep, I put in it. Do you see how hard it is for Tim Gombas to enter the kingdom of God? It's like, because I have stuff. I've got a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I have, I've really tried to tie as little as possible um, money wise um, so that I don't have anything to protect. And then I'm, I'm not trying to, um, push an agenda um and i'm not i'm not tied to people who want to kind of get their claws in my me by labeling me a, a thing um i haven't um i really see i was in a celebritized megachurch environment back in the 90s and i just saw it for what it was and was and i've been very allergic to any of those dynamics ever since and i think for a lot of a lot of us find these mm-hmm. situations difficult because we want well-knownness. We want to have influence. Right. And I want to do big things. Yeah. And, you, and even if I want to do something big for God by telling people not to do big things for God, I'm still subject to those dynamics. <laughs> yeah. and it, you know what I mean? It's like, so it's like, all right, well, what in my life puts me there? Like oh, I've tried oh. to tie, I've tried to tie nothing in my life to any kind of marketing dynamics or desire to be known or whatever. So um, I'm not, I'm not selling I'm not selling like um, a package of anything. I'm just trying to be open and available for conversation. And so all that to say, when I get an email like that, when someone wants to close me down and say like, hey, what box do I put you in? You're saying this. Um, I can either just delete the email um, because I'm very, very interested in genuine conversation partners, but I'm not interested in... um, people who are representatives of um, maybe not trying to, um, you know, representatives of, I don't know what, a kind of Christianity where we sort everybody out. Like I'm not available to be sorted out. All right. I'm loved by God. Yeah. And that I'm not like, I'm not, I don't feel like I have permission to, to let myself play your game because God has already sorted me out. That's like, that's a done thing. So if you're trying to do that, I'm not available. Um, I, I, I don't, I feel like I would be disobedient if I gave my time to your project of figuring me out. Whereas that's not 
that's not up for grabs. That's such a four. <laughs> you, know, you can't name me. Exactly. You don't know me. This this weekend in my classroom was all, and I I'm always curious how these things like if there's a crossover between pastoring and professoring, where because they're like I I conferenced this whole week was conferences, so I just sat with seventy five students one-on-one and just kind of like hammered through things as they're trying to pick topics for the Rogerian essay. So like entering into both sides conversation and finding their argument within an unbiased review of two sides of an argument. And so, but they're all 19, 20, they're still learning how to reason and process information. And they want you to tell them sometimes they either want to just project a complete understanding of a topic a mastery of a topic or they want you to tell them what is the what is what do you think what do you think and it's been that interesting dance of like it's never my job to tell them what i think or what my position is it's always my job to answer back with questions and try to cultivate a conversation so that they can develop the reasoning ability to find their own thing and then you just hope that truth is powerful enough when you see it and you're using reasoning and critical thinking to to be like, oh, and I tell them that like the first day is like, hey, you guys are going to, this is your time to challenge beliefs and challenge things that you have. And it's, and, and it's great. You have two outcomes. Either you're going to do a bunch of research and find that the belief that you held, you agree with, but now you have the reason for it and you have the understanding to back it up, or you're going to change your belief because you found the truth to be something different. And that's really powerful. But I don't know if that's the same thing in this conversation because I just am constantly in a tumble drive with students where it's like, no, like, let's tease that out. Let's tease that out. And I don't know if that email, if that's something where it's like, you tease it out, you tease it out. Or if it's just like, is it, is it different in that context? Cause I only have like one gear right now. Yeah. I was going to say Tim, that's like the, another alternative approach is to, is to generate conversation. Like what, what generates this concern? Or if you, if you got, if you arrived at the label, what do you have now? Or, um, let me just let me just submit to you the frames that I'm working with, and you know you yeah. can consider those or you can dismiss them. That's completely fine. But you know, at the end of the day, um, I'm a conversation partner. I'm not a threat to you. But <laughs> there's a there's a range of possibilities. But I've just tried to I've tried to orient my life so that I'm not tied into the game. I don't know. I guess I don't know if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. No, totally. Because the, they really are back to the original. You know, topic. They really are. Also, there's a cost to that. There's a cost to that, by the way. Go ahead. <laughs> no, what, what do you mean? <laughs> that goes. That goes back to the um, ideological conversation, where it's just, it's a convenient way to group think. And if I can label you and put you in, then then if you're in this category, you think like everybody in this category, and I can either accept you and you're safe, or I can view you as an other and an enemy. Well, and so unloving, no... right? Because you categorize, and then you move on from them. Oh, I figured it, you out. Yeah. Yeah. That sorted, the, the sorting word is really good. Because I mean, and that's what I was getting at. No matter what your job is, whether you're a provider or a consumer or whatever, I mean, we're all sorting constantly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's really good. And the way in which the church can become the anti-sort kind of community 
is represents <laughs> such an like such a crazy uh, distinct contrast to the way the pattern of this world yeah totally i think it's i i think that that's um uh that's such a huge that would be, would be wonderful if we kind of had that as a goal for a while but all i can do is for myself i think that's a really interesting rubric to work with susie because I've, I've done this a lot lately is for the last several years because i felt for the last six or seven years i have never and like we all have i've never felt so powerfully um the the draw and the desire to do that to other people in this contested culture and so i've just been saying it to myself constantly with other people like just like image bearer image of god like mm. image of god okay I'm, I'm talking today with an image bearer i'm not going to say what the political orientation is where like that's all surface stuff this is an image bearer in an infinite reservoir of wonder and i want to open them up and that's how this encounter is going to go mm. so it's just like i know for myself it's a, it's a huge project and it's constant maintenance yeah it is it really is because the the easiest people um for me to judge are the judges right the easiest yeah. people for me to sort are the sorters oh yeah and um ah such a difficult, difficult right line. which is that's hard man i get i get fired up there's a lot of you know the trees on my early morning walks here a lot of my vituperations about my struggle with that it's hard it's like yeah yep it's a really difficult emotional journey to take but i've found that one of the most powerful things is like uh one of the most powerful tools for me is just more contact like like more conversations where we where we talk about all kinds of other stuff it just softens my heart you know it's just it's yeah. I, I found that to be helpful yeah that's so good tim man we are so grateful for you you are such a gift oh, to you guys are the best it's me easy, really nice to you. Yeah. Me too. yeah dude you're <laughs> awesome um people can find you online faith improvised which is your website and then yes, let me sell my wares podcast yes and, and <laughs> you'll find you'll find lots of swag um there i would highly recommend though a couple of books that uh that tim has written um drama of ephesians and then um power and weakness are both really really great explorations of this and and as you know he gets he gets loads of money from these so you're supporting his uh you know consumeristic lifestyle yeah i am a man of leisure Thanks to the podcast world. <laughs> totally, totally. Well, dude, we love you. Thank you. Hey, love you guys. You're the best. All right. See you next time. All right. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash Voxology. You can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials, facebook.com backslash Voxology podcast and on Instagram at Voxology. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for walking the long road with us.